0: Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. And welcome to this episode of Get a Grip with Dr. Kathy Weston. Today we're interviewing Professor Fiona Brooks, who's a medical sociologist and a professor of child and family health at the University of Technology in Sydney. She's published widely on topics relating to young people's health and well-being. Since 2008, she's been the principal investigator for England on the WHO Health Behaviour in school age Children study, and this is a study undertaken in 43 countries which aims to gain new insights into young people's health and well-being their behaviours and their social context. Among the issues Fiona and other HBSC researchers are looking at are eating, sleeping, self-harm, the use of social media by adolescents. In 2014, Fiona was invited by Public Health England to brief all head teachers, principals, teachers and school governors in England on the relationship between health, well-being and attainment. She has advised the UK Cabinet Office, Public Health England and the UK Department of Health. Welcome, Fiona. Thank you, Cathy. Now, Fiona, I want to start with, I know you're based in Sydney, but you're very, obviously, very familiar with England as well, having worked here extensively. I want to talk about something that was in the press this week on adolescent health and it was a study that was um, brought out by UCL at University College in London and it said that adolescents are more likely to feel depressed and self-harm and less likely to get a full night's sleep than 10 years ago. Now that gives us all the impression, a sort of a negative, a very you know, disappointing impression about the sort of the state of our teenagers' mental health In this country, can you put it perhaps into context for us? How are we doing as a nation?
1: Um, I think all of that, that study echoes a lot of findings that other studies nationally and internationally have found. So across OECD countries, we are finding that the traditional kind of risk behaviours we're all concerned about with young people. So the drinking, smoking, and as I always say, the drugs and sex and rock and roll has all declined um, over the last decade. The participation rates in all of those very harmful behaviours has declined. However, alongside of that, we are seeing an increase in kind of poorer emotional well-being amongst young people. Having said that, it is really important when we're talking about young people's lives to understand, and it's really important, I think, for parents to understand this as well and hear this, But the vast majority of young people are still okay. They are doing really well. They are well supported by their families. They're doing well at school and they're navigating adolescence in a positive way. They may have their challenges and their ups and downs, but the vast majority of young people navigate adolescence successfully. And that's a really important message and it's important to put a lot of these concerns around young people into that context. You know, over 80% in our study, consistently across all countries, report high life satisfaction. And they report being well supported by their families and enjoying school. You know, that's the majority. But we're also seeing a number of worrying trends that particularly are shaped for this generation, because this generation is experiencing a form of childhood and adolescence that previous generations did not experience.
0: And what what do you mean by that? Do you talk? Do you mean about their sort of relationship to digital technology? What are the big challenges that perhaps teenagers today are going through that we didn't have to?
1: Yeah, uh, that's that's a major one. The shift in in digital lives has. Exponentially change childhood and adolescence um, in, a, in a very distinct way um, for our young people. So, um, you know, for example, if you are being bullied at school, when I was at school, yeah, we all experienced that to an extent. You could come home and you could get away from it. Now it's much harder because you go online and in many instances it's replicated online. So, those kinds of pressures. Have increased for young people. Um, The the tendency to to feel the need to be online, to use your mobile phone all the time. Um, We have young people sleeping with their mobile phone under their pillow because they're so concerned they'll miss a text. So that that feeling that perhaps we all experience, if we all think back to when we were teenagers, that feeling of being left out, excluded, having um, tensions and dramas with your friends and your social relationships was something we probably all went through. Now, it may just be more intense for young people and harder to get away from.
0: And Fiona, there are so many contradictions in terms of what what I'm seeing in the research around this particular area with, with digital technology. Now, we talk about, there's lots of research to suggest that children who are feeling, teenagers are feeling low, isolated. Actually, social media can be very Um, inviting welcoming uh, they feel less isolated they're able to connect with others uh, who are feeling quite low and that can be beneficial to their well-being whilst on the other side we're obviously aware of many cases where social media has contributed to self-harming and suicidal behaviours in individual cases and I think parents are very confused by that.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important point to make. And, and and the distinction is that we are dealing with a set of tools and it's how we use them um, that is important. The, this the, You're exactly right. Social media can be a powerful tool in supporting young people, in enabling them to improve their attainment at school, improve their well-being by broadening their social networks, getting a global perspective on... Um, on even engaging globally with with friends and young people. So getting a much broader experience than we ever had the opportunity to have. Um, So so that can be really important. And and I've seen that in some of the data that we've got around computer gaming. You know, a couple of hours a night on a computer game doesn't appear to impact on anything negatively and can be really positive in terms of developing pro-social skills, particularly if you're a shy child. It can be really important to do that kind of activity you then fit in with your peers you've got something to talk about at school and you can even if you say you're we were finding in our data that if you're not say a sporty child you've got some other area of expertise you can be popular about because you can navigate all the computer gaming space so In that way, it can be really positive, but it can also be really harmful in terms of reinforcing some of the the negative pressures young people experience. So it's how we as the adult world help young people navigate social media that is really critically important.
0: So one of the lots of the issues when I obviously speak to parents a lot and I'm talking to them about these issues that concern them In my experience, there's a great lack of parental resilience when it comes to, you know, succumbing to the pressure to giving very young children mobile phones. Uh, This is one issue. Uh, Then they're using age-inappropriate apps. Uh, So eight, nine-year-olds on Instagram, for example, or apps like TikTok. I'm not sure if you're aware of that one, which I'm always banging on about because of the lack of digital hygiene that is constantly exhibited on it. So I think that parents don't really know how to manage their children's, how to teach them how to use these particular tools. And we end up in a situation where sort of the children and teens are in charge of whether or not they take their phone to their bedrooms at night and parents are reluctant to um invade their privacy to remove the phone when they have breached their, you know, they just trust them sort of blank, blank, uh, what's the word, Um, uh, you know, uh, comprehensively. And I think there's great sort of reluctance to be authoritative in this particular regard because they have realised their teenager is desperately dependent on the phone for social engagement. So if you were the parent of a 13, 14-year-old now, how would you treat this issue of phones in the room at night?
1: Well, one of the the things that comes out really strongly because we look at what young people think about their family lives. Um, Our study is fairly unique in that respect. And then we ask them, you know, how well do you feel supported by your family and parents and how well do you feel? um, You know, and we ask them about their kind of parenting styles they're experiencing. And, really positive well-being amongst young people is strongly associated with negotiated parenting styles so the really authoritative parent who says no you cannot have this you cannot do this particularly during the later years of adolescence isn't going to get anywhere because really fundamentally the genie's out of the bottle around this you cannot ban children from having mobile phones. you cannot ban them from experiencing the digital world because it's it's part of the everyday. It's, it's almost like saying you could ban somebody from having a pen and pencil and reading books. You know, in the 18th century, there was mass panic about young women reading novels um, and that their whole moral, the world was going to you know, encounter moral decay because young people were reading novels too much. So we need to put some of this into perspective and say, OK, what we need to do is help young people navigate this space because actually they have to navigate it. Um, and we need to, under, so parents need to actually sit down with your young people and play the computer games with them. Understand the content that they're being exposed to. Talk to them about the sorts of websites they're seeing. Um, have open conversations. Um, there are some horrifying stats about young people's exposure to pornography and, not, and really violent pornography um, to the point where, you know, young people are thinking that is normal sexual activity. You've... We need to step up our conversation with young people around these areas and really have much more open and honest conversations with them.
0: And that is something that I certainly share in all of my talks. I remember vividly when you said to me in your office one day, uh, if you're not the source of everything the Internet is, and that really the only leverage we have is in this relationship with our children and keeping those conversations as transparent and open, as communicative as possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting. Here in Sydney, I'm involved in a, in um, evaluating a programme um, that goes into schools and teaches um, quite young children, you know, uh, primary school children, how to deal with sexting, how to deal with how to navigate exposure to quite confronting material. It's a really good intervention. It's done in a really age-appropriate way. And um, my my secretary was saying, Oh, one of her friends, um, it was going, the same intervention was actually going into her child's school. And one of her friends said, "Well, I don't know um, whether or not I want him to do this intervention. She said, he's going to see this material anyway. Isn't it better to tell him, teach him how to navigate it and
0: what to do? And that's really
1: important.
0: And I think parents are desperately shocked when I tell them that the average age of viewing pornography in this country is 11. And as you say, it's too late when the genie's out of the bottle and they've seen something on the school bus that their friend has shown them, that we have to be ahead of the game. And that is a principal message, isn't it, that you've always advocated?
1: Yes, exactly. And and I think parents need to engage, engage with how confrontational and aggressive this material is um, and really talk to their young people about it because it's not just images, you know, nice kind of, Explicit images of couples having sex. It is actually much more aggressive, much more violent than that. A lot of what young people are exposing to. And that is then normalising how they see human sexual relationships. And that is really scary.
0: So Fiona I know that you've been heavily involved in gathering up data on how our adolescents are feeling and doing and we know that this study has recently had an update so you've got 2018 findings uh, as opposed to the 2014 data on how our adolescents are doing. Is there anything you want to share from that study?
1: Well, actually, we're seeing very similar trends to um, the earlier study you um, discussed in the program. We are seeing um, an increase in um, poorer emotional well-being, and that's been a trend over the last decade. What we're seeing a little bit, there has been a little bit of a shift in some of the early data we're seeing, and and, um, one of the things we're seeing is an increase in um, boys' poorer emotional well-being. So that may be about, you know, it, it increased pressures, or um, we don't really know why yet, why there might have be, been a slight shift in that. Um, we've also, which I need to explore further, so um, is around girls wellbeing seems to have slightly improved from previous, under some measures, not all, so we don't know if this is across the board yet. Um, but I do wonder if there might be an association between some of the issues we've seen, the exploration publicly of issues around girls' empowerment, and actually it might be attesting to the fact that actually talking about these kinds of issues actually has a positive impact.
0: And there's certainly been so much work done on empowering girls, you know, in terms of you know even career aspirations, the literature that if you go into a bookshop now there are so, there are sections. That that are you know amazingly um, empowering literature for girls that are being actively sort of shared and promoted, and I think there's a there's a greater sort of movement in that direction, isn't there?
1: Yes, I just wonder if that's having a positive impact um, on some of our girls. Which, um, if it does, and if it, we could um, identify an association between that, is that a question worth asking. It, that would be a really positive outcome from all of this work that's being done around improving girls' empowerment.
0: Now, nationally, there's great debate and consistent um, research published around self-harm. And recently, you know, we were talking about the the rise in self harm. Um, two thirds of hospital admissions are girls who are self harming, and this is an issue none of us had ever heard of when we were at school. I went to an all girls school an all girls college at university. I'd still never heard of it. Can we just dwell on self harming? Um among girls for a moment you've mentioned that girls self-esteem perhaps well-being is improving but how can we put that in context based on what we're finding or hearing about here in England
1: yes I mean um, in 2014 for the first time at the um, request of our funders the Department of Health in England we put in um, a couple of questions around self-harming behaviours Um, because there was a concern, particularly then, that was very very little prevalence data. So while anecdotally we were being told that self-harm was on the increase, we didn't really know if that was across the board in kind of a universal population. And, yeah, it is very high and is maintained at a very high level. So in 2014, 32% of all 15-year-old girls, we only asked the older girls and boys, Had actually reported they'd self harmed at some point in the last year, um, and 11% of all boys. And that's maintained in in 2018 at the same similar sorts of levels. So it is a major concern. I mean, that is a very significant proportion of young people are expressing distress, um, and and it's of a sufficient level that they would engage in self harming behaviours. Um, And so we need to look at what might be the determinants of that and what might be causing it.
0: One thing that you mention in some of your research is this sort of um, connection between the risk of self-harming being twice as high for adolescents who find it difficult to communicate with one parent. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yes, what the findings tend to suggest is that Um, Not being able to communicate with your parent is a significant risk factor, as is not having any adult in your life who supports you. So conversely and positively, um, parental support is a protective factor and also having any significant adult in your life is a protective factor. So be that part a member of an extended family or a teacher. And we found in our, our research that teacher connectedness, feeling connections with one teacher, um, is very, very protective overall for young people's well-being.
0: And that's a lovely point for teachers to live, to hear, you know, how important they are um, to these teenagers, you know, growing up.
1: Yes, it's incredibly important. And we've actually um, undertaken subsequently over the last couple of years an additional project funded by um the EU Horizon 2020 funding, which has looked at teacher connectedness and its impact on wellbeing across a number of countries, including particularly the UK and Spain. And we found very strong um, associations with um, positive wellbeing, young people valuing that kind of support from teachers. And, and really, you know, if they had a teacher they, could, they felt they could talk to, who understood them as a person, Was interested in them as a person beyond just examination results then actually young people tended to do much better and could be considered to be thriving and it's similar with parental support
0: now is there any sort of a gender you know interesting findings around the gender of the particular teacher you know do teenage girls value uh, you know a relationship with a male teacher more anything interesting there
1: No, actually, it's just a teacher you feel who is A, interested in you as a person and B, is someone you can talk to.
0: Lovely. And I think in secondary school, it can be very, very busy. There are thousands of pupils that particular teachers may have. So it's a big ask, but it's certainly something it's lovely worth knowing, isn't it? That that teacher connectedness is so valuable to teenagers' well-being.
1: Yeah, and it is possible to, to achieve that kind of connection via an effective personal tutor system or other forms of system that really enable young people to connect with a teacher. Sometimes it's about, you know, you connect with a subject teacher on a particular level. I remember at school I was I was really passionate about some of the subjects I did. And, and there were a couple of teachers who really supported me and enabled me to do things like actually go to university that I wouldn't have had otherwise. So, you know, a teacher can have really significant... Um, impacts on somebody's life chances.
0: Now, you've mentioned this lovely term protective assets, which parents may not be aware of, but you're really talking there about things that keep our children, our teenagers happy and well and feeling good about themselves. And you've talked about having good communicative uh, conversations, uh, good relationships, high quality relationships with your children. Those are all protective assets, a sense of connection with your teacher. And also, I think being part of a neighborhood a community those kind of strong connections you've highlighted in your research as being very beneficial to teenager um identity and sense of self
1: yes um and and often the community responsibility for um young people's health and well-being tends to get a little bit overlooked and it's one thing that came out very strongly in in our findings and if you think about it You know, as a teenager, this is the first time you may be independently on the street on your own. So if you feel safe in your neighbourhood, if you feel your neighbourhood and community is a place that is welcoming and supportive of young people, and there are good places for young people to go, then that's going to impact on your well-being. We know it's it's the same for adults. So, you know, young people are no different in that respect. And one finding that we found that was really interesting was, If young people lived in a neighbourhood where people say hello on the street, they feel safer and they do better.
0: And of course, I'm sure you're aware in London at the moment, we've got a terrible um, situation with knife crime, which does seem to be a a weekly occurrence amongst young people, unfortunately, in particular neighbourhoods. So I think that's a very interesting point um, that you've taught, you know, that sort of sense of community cohesion is terribly important, isn't it, as a protective asset? your research has found that adolescents who feel a weak connection to their neighbourhood, they're around three times more likely to self-harm. Is that right?
1: Yes. I mean, that was an association, but the way I like to articulate it more is that community cohesion and connection and feeling safe in your neighbourhood is an incredibly powerful protective factor for young people. And this is something... um, that every adult can take responsibility for in terms of creating. So the simple fact of just saying hello and good morning in your neighborhood can can really make a neighborhood feel a much better place. It's a really simple finding and it's been echoed in other studies as well.
0: Now Fiona, what's that what that is making me think about is cultural differences. So where I come from in Belfast, people are over friendly, I would say. <laughs> you know, you bump into someone in the street in Belfast and someone will give you a hug and tell you they're sorry and you'll have a chit chat. And I think Actually, despite the civil, you know, the the, the terrible troubles that we had in Northern Ireland for so many years, it was known as a very, very cohesive and resilient community. And I think your point about that sense of belonging is very important. But what does that, does it, you know, I'm drawing the conclusion that, say, a place like London, where people feel quite, it's, potentially a very unfriendly place in some areas um what does it tell us about sort of cultural differences and and how that plays into teenager well-being so in a in a, in a culture like in an irish culture where people are very chatty and friendly um you know in, in those social spaces or am i just sort of you know drawing a conclusion that isn't there
1: um well i think more work needs to be done around this as, as i said um Uh, you know, when we first started talking about the the community findings and neighbourhood findings, is it's an often overlooked significant factor. Um, And we often point to schools and family as the main sources for young people. But young people are part of a whole environmental ecosystem. And that ecosystem is also their communities. They're in the parks and shops and places they go to when they walk to school. Does someone smile and nod or does someone because they see A group of teenagers walk across the road and you know avoid them are they seen in a hostile way in in the community um and what does that lead to that leads to social exclusion isolation a lack of connection with your community so why care about it what does it matter if you you know um and then also um you know if you talk to young people about why they carry knives it's because they don't feel safe
0: yeah, yeah, that's definitely a major factor. And then it kind of escalates, doesn't it? You feel like you're just vulnerable if you don't carry a knife.
1: Yeah, and then, so everybody's carrying a knife. So, and then, everybody, you know, somebody, you see another group of young people, oh, and they must be hostile, they're a danger, they're a threat. You're already in that threat situation. It's about, we need to think of strategies that actually look at protective health assets and put more of the assets in, in place rather than dealing with the negative behaviours um, that actually, you know, are the outcome of some of these other issues. And that's actually what we've done around the reason alcohol um, consumption has gone down is because there's been effective policy intervention and health promotion strategies around um, alcohol consumption. It's, it's harder now to buy it. Um, there's been a lot of messaging and positive health promotion about not drinking to excess,
0: yet it's fiona actually... yet yet fiona nationally we seem to have i mean certainly in my experience when i come across young people almost all of the ones that i speak to are using cannabis um and f- f- from very affluent areas cannabis use seems to be has become extremely normalized
1: yes i think it has um whether or not that is damaging um, and in what ways it might be damaging, we, we don't yet know. Um, and the evidence is very contested in the area of cannabis. Um, we don't actually look at it, it's the only substance um, use that we actually look at, um, and uh, in terms of the HBSC study. Um, and it, uh, because that we're dealing with 15 year olds and quite young adolescents, it is a difficult area to kind of comment on from this study.
0: I do like your um, idea, you know, isn't it, isn't it great news that, that teenagers are drinking less, you know, behaving better perhaps than their middle aged parents, you know, drinking less, not smoking, not getting pregnant as early, is that correct? How are teenage pregnancies doing?
1: Yes, um, uh, early sexual initiation has gone down significantly. Um, it started to go down very much in the UK because the UK had a very high rate And it did go down with the teenage pregnancy um, intervention that there was. Unfortunately, that has now been lost in the UK. So we need to think about whether or not longer term this will be maintained. But yes, early sexual initiation, which is the problem, um, uh, has actually declined quite significantly.
0: And I'm sure there are so many parents listening to this who are dying. You know, you're the professor of adolescence. We're desperate to ask you if you, you know, if you have a teenager, what is the right message to give them about early sexual encounters? And is it just to keep that conversation open and clear? What's the best advice for parents listening? You know, is it harmful for young people to initiate those kind of sexual encounters, you know, at 13, 14, 15?
1: Well, um, I think the important thing is, um, I'll tell you a story that was, uh, I have a, a researcher in my team who is from Sweden. And I said to her one day, why do you think Sweden consistently has very low teenage pregnancy rates? And she said a couple of things. One, it's around the aspirations that teenage um, teenagers in Sweden kind of tend to have. But she also said something really important that she noticed That in Sweden, when a child or young person asked about sex, they got a straight answer from the adult world surrounding them. And there was open conversations around it. So it was treated as normal every day. And if you weren't sure about something, you could ask. And I think that's really important. If a young person is asking, if your child is asking you um, questions about um, their sexuality, sexual, sexual activity... You know, the whole issue around sexual relationships, answer them, sit down and talk to them and um, take a deep breath um, and help them. Help them navigate the space, become the trusted expert that they can go to because they will find answers. As we said earlier in this program, they will find answers. And, and some of those answers may come from sources that you would not want your young people to be going to.
0: I want to return to parental relationships as a protective asset. And I know that you've done some, some there was some very interesting emerging findings from the last HBSC round of research around Uh, fathers and teenage daughters and there's been a lot of research to suggest that teenage girls if they have a close and warm relationship with their father for example that they're less likely to partake in kind of risk behaviors is that accurate still
1: yes very much so that that kind of finding and it's been replicated elsewhere and again it's the importance of and we see it very much in in countries where there is that there's much higher rates of um support from fathers or father figures it needn't necessarily be a father but a male figure in your life who's incredibly supportive and someone you can talk to does seem to have a really positive impact and in countries where um communication with fathers is, is very high like some of the mediterranean countries we do find there's, there's better well-being amongst particularly girls we don't see that difference that we see in some of the other countries where it is lower Um, And certainly countries like the Netherlands, which have very, very good and positive well-being. That is a feature.
0: What if you're a single mother listening, a single parent, and often they'll say to me, well, my child doesn't have access. My teenage girl doesn't have access to a father figure or a loving father. You know, how do we reconcile that? You know, it it can feel very um, sad for a parent listening to that sort of research. What's your sort of advice to a single parent who's listening to that?
1: i i i thank you that's a really important point to make i think it's really important to to understand that our data is 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 definitely not showing that lone parenting is 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 negative or is not supportive of young people so um this was an you know a, a finding that is important but you can young people as i said there other people in young people's lives members of extended families and teachers this is where the broader adult world surrounding a young person can be really important to to provide that kind of support it's not just about a, you know arguing that the only supportive kind of format for young people can be that traditional uh, two parent family because that we know that is not the case and that lone parents can do uh, and can and do do a very effective job
0: isn't it accurate to suggest that it's the quality of your relationship with your teenager that matters most. So you could be living with a mom and dad in the house, but actually nobody gets on, and you have a very weak um, relationship, and that's not as valuable as having one parent who desperately loves you and is there for you.
1: Exactly right. What what all of our findings collectively show is that the ability to communicate with your your children, the ability to talk and and adapt your parenting strategies for teenagers and realize that the nature of your conversation needs to change as you parent young people through teenagerhood is is really important and we know that you know very very authoritarian parenting is associated with low well-being as is too too lax and disinterested and free parenting it's that negotiated parenting which sets boundaries but actually creates a shared conversation and a shared understanding around those boundaries. That is, you know, lots and lots of studies, including our own, demonstrate to be very effective.
0: Now, when you talk about negotiated parenting, let's put that into real life context. So say your 15 year old uh, son wants to go to a party on Saturday night you know in real life that negotiation might look like um you know you want to go to the party well let's just look at you know where the party's going to be and who's going to be there and what might happen at the party is that what you're referring to you know that they have to be home by midnight and if they're not there's a consequence how does that look what does it look like in in real in real life terms
1: i think i think partly that but what young people also tell us is that if their parents are saying you have to be home by midnight or you have to do this, there isn't a position of trust. Um, you can then get unintended consequence of that. So what you have to build is a relationship of trust so that if something goes wrong, your teenager rings you.
0: So if if things go wrong, your teenager will be the first person they will trust with that information and they might be quite sheepish about it, but they will trust it is you as the parent.
1: Yes, because I have have encountered some of my own daughter's friends um, being prepared to do things that were really dangerous because they wanted to avoid being in trouble with their parents. So their parents set a very strict curfew which meant, then meant they were prepared to take a, a lift from perhaps a dangerous adult or an older person, you know. So they would them or somebody who'd been drinking too much and get into that car when they knew they shouldn't, but it would, you know, put them in a... It's this notion of trust and, and negotiating the boundaries and talking about, well, what if something goes wrong? What are you going to do? I'm not going to shout at you if you do this. Because we all make mistakes uh, during our teenage years we all every single one of us has done something frankly stupid when we were teenagers
0: that's right i love I love your point you know that, that this this you know you need to get home by midnight or your parents will take your phone off you for the week so you take a risk a greater risk a terrifying risk by getting into a car with a drunk friend. Um, I think that's a a very, very good anecdote. I want to return to this issue of girls' self-esteem and this kind of um, anecdotally parents are very concerned. I mean, certainly even the Children's Commissioner in England has published her, her own research talking about girls' dependency on likes on social media. I have been personally horrified by what I've seen on social media. Very, very young girls with thousands, hundreds and thousands of followers on apps like TikTok, where a lot of the imagery that they portray is very sexualized. And I worry myself when I look at that and think these girls are desperate to get as many likes as they can. Um, And I worry that that is a principal source of their self-esteem and self-worth for some girls, for some young people. When it comes to girls' sense of self and the importance it appears to be that physical appearance has in terms of, um, you know, uh, the accumulation of those feelings of self worth, what is your advice to parents in that regard?
1: Well, I think it, it goes down to the same points as well, and that's what uh, uh, the same points we were making throughout the conversation is that for some young people, having thousands of likes or just uh, Facebook or whatever TikTok or whatever they're using will just be part of their life and it won't impact on their well-being. For others, it will. And this is, again, the the understanding where your young person is, what are they worrying about, what are they seeing as important, and then helping them navigate it. So, again, it goes back to how do we as the adults surrounding these young people who are navigating and as a new generation um, of young people with very different experiences around a lot of this how are we helping them navigate it what advice are we giving them how are we sitting with them and saying well you know how do you how do you what does this mean to you why is it important why do you think it's valuable
0: That's Um, right. It means, for example, if they're enjoying, it's fun to lip sync to songs. For goodness sake, everybody enjoys doing it, but it might be you have a private setting or you are preparing your daughter to cope with the numerous comments from adult men that will appear on her account. So as you say, it's what the parent does with that um, material and how they help the child navigate through it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And saying things like that post that was sent to you, was not appropriate, and this is why. So, really helping them so when they are exposed and they will be exposed, they are savvy, wise, and able to navigate this space safely.
0: And it's the equivalent of being streetwise. You know, we all want our children to be streetwise. And I think it's about if there is an equivalent in the digital world to being streetwise, that that's really what we're talking about.
1: Exactly. We teach them how to cross the road, we monitor what they watch on television. Why don't we help them, you know, navigate this space safely?
0: And as you say, the important conversation is just asking. Well, I might, may not be an expert on Fortnite or some of the apps children use, but you can say, tell me about why you like it. You know, so it can be a positive conversation, not a kind of a policing conversation.
1: Exactly. Show me, you know, and, and show, oh, did you win for a Fortnite? Well, that's great. Let's have a look. You know, the kind of what does your character look like? Um, all of those kinds of things show an interest um often we've kind of as adult worlds uh, as parents and, and the surrounding world, have kind of abdicated involvement in any of this um well, you know parents will routinely say and report um children will report that their parents will monitor what they watch on television but not be monitoring or know any content of what any of these computer games are have
0: yeah, it's completely counterintuitive for a parent to ask about, wow, you know, to say, wow, you won on Fortnite. I've never said that, you know, but I think you're right. It's a shame that we don't, um, you know, participate more in their enjoyment of those activities because that is our channel through to building trust and otherwise they won't tell us anything that's happened that's been negative on those media.
1: Yes, so when they do have a contact that is inappropriate or potentially dangerous and harmful... Who are they going to tell? And that's the really important thing. Are they going to tell you? And unless you've started these conversations and you've said, you can tell me anything and I will give you a straight answer, then they're not going to do that. They're going to go to someone else who may not be as
0: helpful. One of the things I've noticed, certainly with my own 12 year old, is that intellectually he accepts you should definitely never speak to strangers online. Yet in the context of a game, if some other player takes something off him, for example, on Fortnite, the first thing he will do is, is, is go to the chat and say, why did you do that? You've taken my sword. So that there's a there's a sort of a gap between the intellectual acceptance that you should be safe uh digitally hygienic but it doesn't translate sometimes because in the moment they will make a a decision that's not you know that puts them at, in harm's way
1: yes and that's where you know they will do things like that they will go to these chat rooms so how harmful is that how harmful is it saying that to that person have they disclosed anything that is actually dangerous to them And that's where you help them with the boundaries. This is where you help them to detect a harmful interaction from an interaction that is, you know, fairly innocuous.
0: Right. So it's about not jumping in. It's not sort of, you know, being shocked. It's about saying, look, thank you for telling me that. Let's have a little look about that interaction. What might an interaction that's not um, appropriate look like? And just getting stuck into these uncomfortable conversations.
1: Yes and, and and exactly, and helping them um, negotiate that space safely. So you know what one, what 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 kind of contact back from somebody like that would be inappropriate, like for example, somebody asking asking you for personal details or your password or you know to meet up. And it's that kind of um, interaction that you know you then have to go to an adult and say, you know, tell me if anybody ever says these words to you. Tell me if someone says that. Let's look at, you know, let's have a chat about what's good and what's not. And I'm not going to stop you playing. That's, you see, the problem is, is if you just say to young people, you cannot do this, then they'll find other ways of doing it.
0: Absolutely. Um, I want to return to the issue of pornography, which most parents, when I tell them the sort of the stats around teenage consumption of pornography they 're absolutely horrified and then they go home and find out yes their fourteen year old fifteen year old boy is looking at pornography and I think it's important you know in the context of these conversations, many parents have no idea. What to say to their child about that particular issue, in my experience, a lot of the dads in particular, some of them will laugh it off um, and in in my own experience giving these talks, the mothers have no clue in particular what 's what 's available online in that regard, so there 's a great reluctance to you know some sometimes parents think it's oh, it's just part and parcel of growing up but actually they have no concept uh, as you've suggested of what they could be actually viewing um online so i think a lot of parents have asked me about this issue you know they walk in their 14 year old boy they discover he's watching that kind of thing online what is your advice in that regard given you and i know what they could be viewing
1: yes i think that is a is a really serious issue and and Often, because we've not had the the healthy conversations about sexual relationships, because we've avoided them, we haven't encouraged our young people to actually ask us anything, um, then navigating this space, and within two or three clicks, you can be into some really harmful material um, that is um, very... Very violent against women, violence against partners, normalising activities that, you know, you would find really deeply disturbing and shocking. Um, and I looked at some of it just in relation to, to self-harm. And within a couple of clicks, it was very easy to find, for me to find material that promoted self-harm to young people, um, which is really very worrying. That it's not just, um, uh, you know, that young people are self-harming, but some of the behaviours are being re- reinforced online.
0: And also, and per- parents don't want to delve in and look at those things at all on their own computers, and to say, but actually, you know, they have to. You know, I was, I always tell parents that PornHub, which is the largest, I think it has forty million users a day has content that it's the most popular site amongst boys between 11 and 16 in this country and it has content of rape scenes uh, gang rape uh, uh, violence against women that is part that seems to be fed into this kind of fantasy world that people seem to think is is perhaps normal for teenage boys to access and as you say there is a vicious circle where it is seeping into these teenage relationships and the dynamics of that physical relationship and girls are feeling particularly coerced into activities they would not normally want to um, participate in.
1: Yes and uh, and that is exactly true and it's very very it's something we should be really concerned about and seeking to address because it is normalizing very violent and very damaging sexual acts that uh and exposing young girls to it and young boys as well. Um and there was a very serious case um here in Australia recently where a 16-year-old girl was um very seriously harmed by activities that were normalised, were thought to be normal by all the participants in in that set of acts and you know she's now um gonna have health issues for the rest of her life. So you know, that we've got to, it is really important that we step into this and start having conversations and changing the nature of our conversation around sex and sexual relationships with young people.
0: So at the hub of everything that we've talked about, it's still the, the, the quality of the relationship you have with your teenager, the quality of those conversations is absolutely vital to their health and well-being.
1: Yes, absolutely. And a really positive finding I I, I would like every parent to understand is that even when your teenager is slamming their door and rowing with you and saying, shut up, you don't know anything, mum or dad. Actually, all our data shows that um, young people are listening and they do want to have a relationship. They do want to have these kinds of conversations. They just may do it on their own terms. And you have to be prepared for that as well.
0: And I think parents are often, we're all too keen to, to have the chat when, you know, you're in the heat of the moment, when things have gone wrong, when things have gone off the rails, when actually it's important to have these chats when children are feeling happy and relaxed. And you might be riding your bike or you might be together washing the dishes. And it's then to have the little, little and often chats.
1: Yes, exactly. And it's it's, it's giving the straight answer to that oh, mum, someone at school said this and I didn't know what it was. It's, it's, it's building up a relationship over time where you answer them. You don't say, oh, I, oh that wasn't anything, or I can't talk about that now, or, you know, or, or giving an answer that fobs them off because they know when they're being fobbed off. Um, think back to kind of your own teenage experiences and what you would and wouldn't want to disclose to your parents and why that was. Um, we can all learn from this we can all improve
0: i think it's important that you know um you know i would worry if my child didn't ask questions if they don't ask you questions curious questions then really maybe we're not making that space available to them to do so
1: yes and i think for some you know for parents it is really hard time poverty amongst parents is, is is a really big issue we're all busy. Work is busy. You know, finding that time, and often it's it's has to be on the teenager's own time when they're ready to talk, not when you're ready to have this conversation.
0: <laughs> um, Fiona... Which can often,
1: be, yeah, when you're not really, you know, not really ready for it.
0: Fiona, just a last question about teenage sleep. So this morning I was trying to get my 12 year old out of bed and he said, why can't I just lie in? You know, he always wants to lie in on the wrong days. And recently there's been a big debate about extending, you know, uh, the start of the school morning to later in the morning, you know, because we know that teenagers benefit from having a lie in. Have you got any recent interesting research findings around teenage sleep?
1: Yes. Well, we do ask about this. We ask about um, time, time they went to sleep and um, some of the impacts, this the, the amount of sleep they report they're getting. Um, obviously, we've not systematically actually studied how much sleep they're getting. But um, one of our findings that does concern us is that a very high proportion of young people, and particularly as they age, report they don't feel they've had enough sleep to concentrate at school. Um, And it's around 50, nearly 50 percent of girls and a little bit less than that of boys report that they really feel they're not being able to concentrate at school because of lack of sleep.
0: Yet they're aware of that, but they will, as many parents listening will know, they will not go to bed. I'm not tired. You know, they want to stay up they just i think they're on the phones maybe in the phones in the bedroom or on their laptops iPads in the bedroom what's your advice to a parent you know in practical sense so how they can help their child get more sleep
1: well i i think you said it earlier it's about sleep hygiene it's about you i mean you were talking about social media hygiene but sleep hygiene is really important as well so and we know from some international studies that were done about numbers of devices in a bedroom that it increases the hour by which you go to to bed by um, exponentially by the number of devices. So each device adds an hour to the point at which you actually go to sleep. Um, So if you've got a mobile phone, a television and a computer and some other device, then, you know, that adds a number of different hours to um, when you actually go to sleep.
0: I'd love to know what you think of. I'd love to know what you think of this brilliant tip that a friend of mine in Belfast gave me with her teenager who never wanted to go to sleep. She bought him a Fitbit and it, or an Apple Watch, whatever it was, and it monitored the quality of his sleep. And if he could prove he had a good seven, eight hours sleep, then he got his phone in the morning before school.
1: <laughs> yeah, that tends to work. These kinds of strategies work well with younger adolescents. Um, older ones can be a little bit more resistant <laughs> um, and navigate their way around these kinds of um, strategies. Um, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, it's about negotiating something that's right for your young person.
0: So, it is always um, I, I, about uh, sort of as a concluding point, it's really about thinking about your own child. They might be particularly mature, able to navigate some of these challenges better, you know, than other children. It's thinking about the quality and setup of your own family uh, life and relationships, isn't it? And not being kind of, you know, um, worried tremendously by what you might read in the papers and just looking at your own context and how things are going.
1: Yes, exactly. And, trusting your your child um, and yourself to do a good job
0: lovely well we're going to leave it there Fiona very finally if you were pinpoint sorry if you were signposting parents to what you think what might be the best book or the best website or how they can connect with you and, and your work what would you say you know are your favorite go-to websites that parents might find useful
1: um, well, I think, I mean, there's a plethora of information out there, and a, a, you know, and and, a, and the for parents, the the same issue as as young people, you know, the 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 state of information and the quality of information is incredibly variable. So one of the things I would say is, is look at the source of the information. So you know, Public Health England um, and some of the official um, sources of support are probably some of the better ones. So think about where the source of that information is, is coming from and how, what is it backed by? Because there is a lot of stuff out there that isn't very good and maybe um, actually from sources of, of support and information that isn't very appropriate.
0: If you're a teacher listening, as many are, uh, what uh, what's your sort of advice again? Is it the same thing to make sure that you are accessing good quality information when you're thinking about teenagers' mental health and well-being?
1: Yes, and I think my, many schools do do this very well and are thinking about this very carefully. And I know a lot of the schools that we work with, in, in our study are actually concerned about young people's health and well-being and are doing the study to help inform their strategies for um, promoting health and well-being with, amongst their population. So I think schools on the whole are really trying to do a really positive job um, and it, it's about all the agencies around them supporting them in that work.
0: And obviously, I'm trying to do my little bit here by making sure that the most eminent researchers in the world are having a voice that, you know, your work is reaching um, millions of homes and hopefully parents and teachers can listen to what you're saying. And we've we've distilled a lot of quite complicated research into practical tips. So thank you so much for joining me.
1: Oh, thank you, Cathy.
0: Thank you. Fiona Brooks, uh, Professor Fiona Brooks uh, of University of Technology, Sydney. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.